Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Cullen-Lucas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a dedicated assessment of Mercedes' greatest ever Grand Prix cars, which features in this week's Autosport magazine, as well as on Autosport.com+. Now, an important caveat to start with, because of Mercedes' many periods of non-entry at the top level of motorsport, the cars we're talking about include machines that predate the Formula 1 era that started in the years following the Second World War, with the World Championship we know today following in 1950. Mercedes has only been part of that championship as a full works entry twice, but in both theories of F1 entry, it has utterly dominated the series, and it was ultra-successful in the European Championship that effectively predated the World Championship before the war, and even back to the earliest years of motorsport competition. This week's Autosport magazine cover feature is a dedicated look at all the changes coming for the 2021 season that Mercedes itself has highlighted as potential problems it must overcome. Uh, On the Autosport podcast, however, we covered that topic on our show from the 29th of January, which I urge you to listen to if you haven't done so already, and so we decided to take a slightly different approach for this week's magazine accompaniment episode. As we did for Williams and McLaren concerning their top 10 best F1 cars, we're listing what we think are the 10 best Mercedes Grand Prix cars, with that caveat I just mentioned in mind, as the main part of today's podcast before we discuss two other altogether different motorsport topics that are included in this week's magazine. So to get through all of that, I'm joined by two special guests, Autosport's chief editor, Kevin Turner. And of course, because we'll be chatting about plenty of historic motorsport, we've also got Autosport's youngest editorial staff member along for the ride too, which is editorial assistant, Matt Q. Uh, But before before, uh, Matt says something outrageous about my podcast hosting abilities, uh, we'll come to Kev first because this is another one of your famous lists that you enjoy writing we enjoy reading and enjoy talking about how how different was this one in particular because as i said in that introduction mercedes and grand prix racing is very much 
come and go, come and go. Like it's not as simple as thinking back through the last, and which was not just that it's a simple task, but looking back through the last 40, 50 years of Williams and McLaren Grand Prix cars, it's uh, you're really comparing many, many completely different eras, which as we know when we're talking about drivers is, is something that's fraught with peril. So how did you find this one with the Mercedes cars? Yeah, it was quite different um, and quite interesting because of that. Actually, it was quite nice to have a slightly different take on it. I mean, for a start, if you'd only did F1 Mercedes, almost all of them would have been in the recent, you know, the last sort of 10 years, which would be would be pretty boring. I think you'd effectively just be writing the history of the, you know, of, of, of the turbo hybrid era. So I didn't really want to do that. And, you know, Mercedes has been around for so long uh, and produced... Uh, you know, a very high percentage of very successful cars. So as you say, it's been in and out of the sport, but whenever it's been in it, you've known about it because they've been at the front, either competing for wins or disappearing into the distance. Um, so yeah, it was a different it was a different sort of list because it was choosing basically the greatest of a list of almost entirely great cars, whereas with most teams and manufacturers, even even the good ones, they've got a few a few dodgy ones you can immediately cross off the list. But there aren't there aren't many in the Mercedes back catalogue you can do that with. Matt Key, obviously, when Mercedes returned to Formula One most recently was in twenty ten. Um, what year of primary school were you in at that point? <laughs> Very good. Uh for for people who are as bad at maths as me, conveniently I was born in 1996, so I can track my years at school based on the year. So in 2010, I was in year 10, uh, still only on my path to becoming such a formidable journalist uh, as in the formative steps. But yeah, it's good. And I think, although obviously this is a Grand Prix car list, um, I'm writing a sort of concurrent, well, not a concurrent feature, but a feature about Mercedes ambitions in Formula E. And to sort of put that in context, it was just you know scrolling through various pages of wikipedia and whatever but it sort of really hits home how successful they are across the board but sports cars with you know the 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 sauber program um dakar rally the the g-class won it i think with martin brundle driving kev or oh, uh, jackie x driving sorry kev i think i think we'll know that and then touring cars with a dtm um land speed records obviously and and even famous endurance races so i think as, as I said, although this is focused primarily on Grand Prix cars, the, if the, if you were to open it up, it'd be a top 100 before you'd really even narrowed it down to a shortlist, I think. Just to explain to the listeners, I'm I'm needling Q about his age because he never misses an opportunity when we're in the office or indeed working remotely to point out how much older than uh, him I am. But there we go. Um, it's an interesting point you make about Mercedes in Formula E, Q, because I was actually thinking about that uh, when I was reading one of uh, Kev's entries in the top 10 list later on in terms of Mercedes come back to Formula One in 2010. They buy, you know, the, the the team that's just won the championship in Braun in 2009. But things just don't quite come together. You know, they 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 take a few years to get it together. Obviously, the big rule change helps them. But it did make me think a little bit about Mercedes' first entry, first year of entry in Formula E, and that yeah, it didn't quite go as expected until they win the final race. You got, you know, they sort of they're doing their learning, and then you do think, oh. Is this is that is a very similar thing going to happen there? Um, but maybe we'll, we'll come to, we'll come on to Formula E later on in this podcast because there's a, there's a dedicated feature uh, in the magazine that uh, we'll talk about electric racing. So let's get into the top ten, Kev. At number ten on your list, you've got the W one six five from nineteen thirty nine, uh, and you've called this as the very first line of your entry here. It's one of the great motorsport stories. So why is that? Well, it's one of my favourite stories. Um, so, I mean, I guess the elephant in the room for some of these cars, certainly before the war, would be the sort of the Nazi funding, uh, which is, uh, well, actually the exact opposite to the sort of um, persona and image that Mercedes has now, of course, with its um, Black Lives Matter and supporting Lewis Hamilton's drive for uh, equality. So, yeah, obviously the Nazi state funding was very important to Mercedes and auto union 
uh, before uh, before the war. Um, but I was sort of putting that to one side and just trying to look at the cars and the races they were involved with. And I just love this story because basically by the late 30s, everyone had given up trying to beat the Germans in Grand Prix racing. The French had run off to do sports cars. The Brits were still racing around Brooklyn's anyway. Uh, and the Italians were in voiturette racing, which was effectively very roughly Formula 2, the feeder category, if you like, if such a thing existed then. And the Tripoli Grand Prix, so it's an Italian colony, a few months before the race, they decided that instead of being run for Grand Prix cars, as normally, the three-litre supercharged formula, they would make it for the voiturette 1500cc supercharged cars, thereby, in theory, guaranteeing an Italian victory. Um and in fact, all but two cars that turned up for the race in 1939 were Italian. And Alfa Romeo were sort of the pre-event favourites, if you like, with the new 158, which became a great Grand Prix car after the war. Um, but in total secrecy, Alfred Neubauer's Mercedes team developed and built two 1500cc supercharged straight eight W165s, scaled down Grand Prix cars, uh, and they didn't they didn't test them. The second car was finished on the boat on the way over, and they duly... Uh, turned up didn't qualify on pole streamline maserati was on pole but was uh, there's some footage of it uh, leaving a trail of oil as it leaves the line at the start so that didn't last very long uh, and mercedes duly thrashed the opposition one two so there were 30 odd cars in the race two of them were mercedes they finished first and second and the cars never raced again so point made and there aren't many racing cars with 100 percent uh finishing record I just, I just love the story behind it the organisers thinking they got one over the Mercedes team and Mercedes rocked up and, and won anyway. I think that's really cool. It does uh, It does evoke thoughts of changing the rules to stop the current Mercedes squad w- winning and then they just still turn up with, with ever more dominant machines. But perhaps we'll, we'll get into that further into the list. Uh, number nine, it's the W06 Hybrid from 2015, the second car produced in sort of the, the current turbo hybrid era of Formula 1 that came about, started in 2014. Uh, took two titles, obviously the 2015 Drivers' and Constructors' Championships. It's Lewis Hamilton's third title overall, his second uh, for Mercedes and second in a row. Uh, why is that number nine, Kev? I found it quite tricky to look at the, the turbo hybrid cars because obviously they've all been incredibly successful um, and when, when, but when you look at it, the, the the wide cars, as I like to call them, the cars that the, the current proper beastly looking cars, uh, they've not had as much of an advantage until the until last year. They their advantage been much smaller over Ferrari. Whereas the first three years, the turbo hybrid era, they were well ahead. Uh, the twenty fourteen car scores higher for me because it's the car that started that run, uh, and as we'll get to later, the twenty sixteen car scores highly as well. But I mean, you know. Uh, it was only beaten, the 2015 car was only beaten, what, three times uh, in those 19 races. I mean, it was beaten fair and square, whereas some of the other cars on the list, you could argue, have only ever been beaten because of circumstances like drivers crashing into each other. You know, Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari did manage to genuinely beat Mercedes with this, but it still had 12 one-two finishes. This was still in the era when they um, uh, Mercedes couldn't get the hang of the hang of Singapore, so they weren't very good there, but in, in everywhere else... Uh, yeah, it was it was the dominant car, um, and it's it sort of it had to be on the list really. And I think um, it's just interesting to, to think how well they did that year, despite the fact to say they did get beaten on merit. The team's tally, as you put Kevin, your piece of seven hundred and three points is more than the totals of Ferrari and Red Bull combined. It's probably easy to because they've strung all these championships together now. It's easy to think of it as one long sort of run of domination, but their level of competitiveness and the edge they've had over the opposition has actually changed quite a lot. Uh, during that time and the 2014 to 16 period really was incredibly one-sided 
Kev, can I uh, can I not raise an objection, but quiz you on something at this point? So we'll d- I'll do it now because we're on the fringe of the top ten. But did the uh, W O eight from two thousand seventeen ever get a look in on your list? Because I suppose one of the ways we rate good Grand Prix teams in the office is how they survive major rules transitions. And I just wonder whether sort of going from the the skinny rear wings and smaller tires up to the sort of bigger aero package and Mercedes still maintaining that advantage. I just wonder whether it, it came close at all. Yeah, each one of those post-2016 cars, um, as I say, which I consider to be a bit more proper and, and cool to look at, they were all um, they were all considered, really. But, I mean, you had the, the Diva year, where the car was a little bit difficult to, to set up. You had the year in 2018, in my opinion, that Lewis Hamilton won the World Championship for Mercedes rather the other way around. But most of the time, he has had a car advantage. But I think it was Hamilton that won the championship in 2018. So, obviously, that takes something away from the car. And really, um, in the end, I just thought where they've where they got to at the end of that run of cars almost kind of sums up everything. So we'll get to that later on the list. Is I thought I'd you know p- pick the best one of the group and really whack it up high rather than tick them off. But yeah, I think any one of the last of the cars since 2014 could have been put forward to be on the list, definitely. Well, at number eight, next on the list, it's the W25, uh, used in 1934 to 1936, took the 1935 European driver's title. Uh, this is the first of the pre-war era Mercedes success stories, although, as, as you said earlier, Kev, you know, it did come about um, from the massive investment from the Nazi government. And I actually just wanted to just make a quick point here because something I thought about, as you mentioned it earlier, anyone who uses that to undermine what Mercedes is trying to do in 2020 and 2021 about promoting diversity and really trying to address some of the awful social problems in the world, I mean, just just get over that. Just, it just doesn't work. It, like, it's, just, it's just a complete nonsense. But anyway, side point, why is W25 at number eight? Um, well, it's uh, it, it, it ends. You know, Mercedes, you've said Mercedes come in and out of motorsport, and they'd been out for quite some time before this. Obviously, their the 1914 French Grand Prix win uh, was you know, it was 20 years before, and they the the new uh, 750 kilogram formula was coming in, and that was kind of introduced really with the thoughts of Maserati's now from ours in mind, and then Mercedes and Auto Union come in with, and they com- they completely move the goalposts with what's possible with that weight limit uh and it, it, it's the car that it wins most of the races in 1934 Rudolf Caracciola wins the European championship is effectively the world title in 1935 things go a little bit off in 1936 because with the with the with the weight limit that it's it, they mustn't go over it so that's the rulemaker's way of trying to limit engine size so Mercedes were trying to make the engine as big as possible within that weight limit. And eventually, by 1936, they actually screwed up the handling on the car. And it was a bit of a nightmare. And also Union with Bernd Rosemeyer were able to, to beat them in 36. But it was the Grand Prix car of choice for two years. Uh, it did fail on its international debut, the French Grand Prix. But it was pretty obvious that the writing was on the wall. And it, that and the Auto Union pretty, made, pretty much made every other Grand Prix car obsolete overnight. Well, next up is the only turbo hybrid era car that hasn't taken Lewis Hamilton to a world title. That's the W07 hybrid from 2016. Obviously, still did pick up two titles this car because of the Constructors' Championship and uh, Nico Rosberg's title. So, Kev, why is that at seven? Um, it's got. I could give you one of, one of the stats uh, that I came across while I was looking at it, and it averaged 36.4 points per Grand Prix. So, if you think that's that's 25 for 25 for a win. <laughs> So it, it, you know, basically averaging 
what's that, a first and a third? Remember, this is before pole positions as well. So uh, perhaps a first and a fourth uh, at every start, which I think is absolutely remarkable. You know, 19 wins from 21 races, which I think in the World Championship strike rate is only beaten by the McLaren MP44. Uh, so yeah, just an absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous uh, tally it had, and it, it scored more points um, in uh, Mercedes scored more points in 2016 than it has done in any other F1 season. Um, so just by sheer, I don't think it was particularly innovative. It was an evolution of the, the car from the year before, which was an evolution of the 2014 car. So I don't think it was sort of a game changer, but uh, just by sheer success, it had to be in there. And what's what's particularly impressive about that? points that is that this is the car where it was unreliability allied with the fact he made some very poor starts throughout the season that cost Lewis Hamilton the title so there were problems with it there were races that it didn't pick up any points and yet it still was so good that that's what it that's what it ended up with with getting yeah it's probably the reliability problems that um sort of kept it down in in seventh really um I'm, is that a little bit harsh they still finished first and second in the drivers championship you would i mean you could have a probably a separate podcast on and i think there probably was a podcast at the time about whether it was the right champion did nico rosberg deserve the title etc etc um so yeah it was sort of marked down a little bit on on the unreliability thing but i mean it's only unreliable in a modern mercedes context if you were that reliable in any other era of f1 it would be considered almost bulletproof I'd also add there's another criteria we have for this list is the strength of the competition. And compared to 2015, where Ferrari was really there or thereabouts, 2016, them and uh, Ferrari and uh, Red Bull slipped back massively. So uh, I'll, I'll stick up with you, Kev, and say I think seventh is an absolutely fair rating for this one. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, the, the opposition, yeah, we do try and try and factor that in, as you say. And uh, yeah, Ferrari... Fry went through this period where the, the even-numbered year was, wasn't very good. 2014 and 16 were definitely two of those. Delivery was okay, though. Introduced a splash of white, but that's probably uh, getting off topic. As Alex would <laughs> say, that's another podcast in of itself. One of the defeats is the race where Hamilton and Rosberg take each other out. So they would nailed on to win that race as well. It would have done even better if that hadn't happened. Um, really, again, just look back on that those images. absolutely remarkable that they, uh, they did take each other out. And again, just looking back, on that era of Formula One cars, I just, just uh, you know, obviously that everything's made about the the awful uh, noses at that sort of time. Although Mercedes, obviously, not one of the teams that that really did that. The skinny rear wings just looked terrible. Just looking back on it, especially now what what we've been what we've been uh, treated to since twenty seventeen. Yeah, a lot of those cars from two thousand and nine to twenty sixteen weren't very nice. And actually, Mercedes did us a bit of a favour because. I'd say they probably produced one of the better looking cars in each season. You know, they didn't do those horrible proboscis noses and stuff that that uh, g- gained notoriety for a while. So, yeah, and I think the the Mercedes sort of tended to look uh, not, not a pretty ear, as you say, but the Mercs were probably the best of a, a not so brilliant bunch. Although going back to predating their era of success, the 2012 step nose Mercedes is one of the worst. Like it's, it's, it's like a 90 degree angle or whatever it was. Like it was really, really pronounced. Yeah, that was anyway, bad. Yeah. Since then, they've been very, very aesthetically pleasing. Um, let's go right back in time as we come up to number six on your list. It's the W154. Uh, Kev, it's a new car for Mercedes, uh, 1938, also used in 1939. Uh, that went up against pretty stiff opposition from Auto Union. So why is it in sixth place? I think it's probably the best pre-war Grand Prix car in that they changed the, the formula. It was all getting really out of hand with the 750 kilogram formula um, for reasons we'll come to later on the list. Uh, so the three litre supercharged uh, limit was introduced. And I think Mercedes just, I think the W155 is probably just a more complete package. I think probably its predecessor had a surfeit of power 
um, which which modern uh, which sorry the, which uh, the tire and chassis technology of the time just couldn't really handle. And despite being a couple of hundred brake horsepower down on the predecessor, the W one five four was um, was almost as quick. Uh, and it was the car to have 38-39. Also, you did occasionally win some races, but generally the Merc was was better. Um, and just a little aside point, it often gets called, the 1939 car, which got a different body, which I think is probably a bit prettier, often gets called uh, the W163. But my understanding is that actually that refers to the designation of the engine change. So that's why, before anyone complains, I'm sure they won't, but in case they do, the W154 is the designation of car that raced in 38 and 39. Well, at number five, and just to let listeners know, I had to actually pause the podcast to get Kev to confirm how we refer to it. Uh, it's the 18100 car that was mentioned in passing earlier as the winner of the 1914 French Grand Prix. And it's, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's actually pre-World War One Mercedes success story with a 1-2-3 in that race and also won the 1915 Indy 500. Um, it's pretty high up on the list Kevin number five why is it there I think it's there partly because it sets up the legend you know when when Mercedes come back in 1934 and then 1954 everyone is worried about it all the rivals are worried about it so what Mercedes come up with and part of the reason for that is this car I think um, Mercedes had actually won the French Grand Prix in 1908 the third ever running the race but I think this is the more famous one so um, new regulations reduce the energy size to four and a half litres which seems crazy from a modern perspective but you know, F1, uh, sorry, Grand Prix engines were getting ludicrous before that. And Mercedes developed a new four-cylinder engine, overhead camshaft, two inlet and exhaust valves per cylinder, which I think makes it the first four-valve four per cylinder Mercedes, uh, produced over 100 rate horsepower, uh, had good road holding. And then they did the thing that Mercedes often does, which is preparation, meticulous testing. They went and looked at the course for the French Grand Prix and they rocked up with five cars. So... It was, you know, it was a proper assault. And Peugeot actually had a very good car and a couple of very good drivers that put up a pretty stern resistance. But it, it, that's what it was, really. It was it was a trying to resist the steamroller. And Mercedes, in the end, finished finished one, two, three. And I just I like the fact that the car then goes on to win. You know, they managed to get one out of the country before the First World War uh, got going. Uh, and Ralph De Palma won the 1915 Indy 500, as you say. And a modified version actually won the 1922 Targa Florio. So although it's not got a list of Grand Prix wins to its name, it's probably the only car in history to have won a Grand Prix, the Indy 500 and, a, and the Targa Florio. Um, although I would have to check that to be sure. Take that, Fernando Alonso. Uh, well, let's, um, <laughs> let's move on to the car at number four. Now, interesting with, with this one, um, well, actually with the next two, in fact, so maybe Kev, I'll get you to introduce them together, number mm. number, four, number four and number three, because they're both cars that start eras of Formula One domination for Mercedes. So I just interested to know why at number four, actually I'll do it, and then you can defend it. Why at number four, it's the W05 hybrid from 2014, obviously wins the uh, the, the driver's title of Lewis Hamilton and the Constructors' Championship that year. And at number three is the W196, which Mercedes used in 1954 and 55 before it leaves after the Le Mans disaster. Two titles in obviously both of those years, uh, but no Constructors' titles simply because it hadn't been, frankly, invented yet. Um, but yeah, as I said, the, the two cars that started eras of Formula One domination and the, probably the two most famous Mercedes Formula One, you know, as I say, eras, um, why have you got them that way around? Yeah, it's a very good question. You could very easily um, swap these two around, I guess. Part of it is my own 
uh, subjectivity, which does creep in occasionally. I try to keep it out, but um, yeah, for me, I've always gonna, it's always going to be appealing to stick a mid fifties racing car into a high up a list like this. But also, to be fair, you know, with the with the W O five, that was into the you know the fifth season of Mercedes being back in Grand Prix racing, so they had worked their way up to it. And of course, they'd come in as you say in twenty twenty, have, having bought the championship winning Braun team effectively from the year before, and then not really pressed on like they'd had to rebuild if you like whereas in 1954 yet again you know they'd not been in Grand Prix racing since before the war what are they going to do and they come back and you know bang the car immediately finishes first and second in its first Grand Prix and wipes the floor with everyone with the exception of Alberto Ascari in a in a Lancey D50 which sadly didn't uh that that project did not run as it should have done um but um but yeah no they're both but both fantastically dominant cars won everything that they could um but i guess the w196 although i think um as i've fallen out with uh, not fallen out but disagree with luke smith on a previous podcast i don't think the w196 is a particularly good looking car certainly not in its open form um but it is probably cooler than the w05 you look annoyed she's good go on as, as a shallow person who takes most value from aesthetics i think i'm in well positioned here to say i think the w196 is an absolutely fantastic looking car it's like i i never buy into that cliche that you know cars from the 50s and 60s or oh, it still looks modern today they don't they look dated but i think the w16 is 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 not timeless design because that's criticizing what i've just said but it's it's got it's it's aged very well. I think it's it's a it's that case of uh, uh, form following function, isn't it? It was you know especially in the the sort of as it was dubbed the Monza spec with the wheel covers, which also I liked. I like how that sort of uh, puts a spanner in the works for all those who argue about the DNA of Formula One and whatever that means as a non sector because it's been closed wheel on occasion four times at least. I think it's a yeah stunning looking car. The 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 streamliner. So the car that they used on the on the fast circuits that. Uh... Uh, Monza and and actually when it came out for the French Grand Prix it was the streamlined version then and then Fangio used it to hit a load of barrels at the British Grand Prix in 1954 and went actually be nice to see the wheels uh, and then they had the open the open wheel car which did most of the winning the streamliner is, is quite nice but if you're going to go down that route you might as well have a 300 SLR sports car which I think is even better again uh, and the W196 uh, open wheel I've always thought was a, yeah, a bit boxy if you put it next to a Lancia D50 or 250F Maserati the same era I think they'd be more swoopy and therefore aesthetically pleasing. But I appreciate that. I'm, I, I'm amazed that I've got that's two 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 younguns have told me that the W196 is a good looking car. So well, I don't uh, think we're uh, revealing too much and say you're a massive sports car fan. I would have thought anything that takes Grand Prix open wheelies to <laughs> to look more like that, you'd be all for. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's a purely subjective. I look at pictures of the of the open wheel car and go meh. And as as right. chief editor and also abreast of the national scene, can we expect to see a one nine six at the Goodwood Revival anytime soon? No, I think that. Well, you, Mercedes do bring it out for demos, don't they? They bring them out for demonstration runs. Actually, one of my um, your your piece that you ran uh, in the magazine a few weeks ago. Which era would you know? Which motorsport event would you like to go back to? If you go back to anyone in time, in the end, I did plump for the nineteen seventy Brands thousand uh, kilometer sports car race because nine one sevens are my thing. But the close second was going back and seeing the Silver Arrows in various eras. Uh, and that's one of the unfortunate things is because Mercedes are so good at looking after their history, there are no 
WR 960s in captivity to be enjoyed in historic racing. Yeah, when they were getting airborne at Donington, no wheel nuts fell off from which you can create an entire chassis and claim it as an original to bring it back. Quite, quite. Um, I wasn't asked to contribute to that piece. I, when I got what, to the end of the magazine, I was like, oh, why, why was I not included there? You ran that section, Mackie. What happened there? I obviously respected how busy you are, Alex, in your day job, having then gone and seen the Autosport website and not seen one of your bylines in a long time. But <laughs> I respected that, so I thought I would keep it clear. And uh, and I'm sorry, a podcast can't go by without not bringing that up. When, when someone declares, what did you say, like the 1950s is the infancy of motorsport? I thought, do we really want Alex to get in on a retro piece? <laughs> That's not what happened. It was the it was the infancy of the world championship. It's a long running battle because I I still I still just contend that we don't know we could still be in the end we could still be in the infancy of motorsport. You don't know what the, what the future is going to hold. A happier it could last side, Alex. Hundred thousand years. A happier side. If I could put you on the spot, where would you go back to? I wouldn't give you a specific race, but I would I would go back to something like the fifties just to see a completely different era. I've got I've got that the, the peep show uh, uh, thing about time travel in, in the last series in mind where it's like go back to a completely different civilization effectively I'd, I'd like to go back and see what the teams were like what the drivers were like what it was like as a fan experience like you think of the, the hundreds of thousands of people that packed into the very first race at Silverstone you had the royal family there the Mercedes team rock up in the middle of the 1950s and are pretty recognizable to how they are today because they're meticulously prepared they've got the best kit and the best technology and they win everything so yeah i'll give you a, a general time period that i would go and visit but uh, i know you're already raising objections no i was, I was just going to add that sort of uh, it's another hypothetical of which there's no answer but it's sort of fun to entertain for a minute it's obviously the w196 you know was competing in 1955 of course when there was the Le Mans disaster and that sort of mercedes mercedes withdrew from top line motorsport is is just one of those interesting things to propose would be would we be any further on with the development of, of formula one of, of top line racing cars had they stuck around giving sort of what a, what a titan they were would would the advancements have come five ten years sooner than perhaps they did yeah i know i think what matt says is actually a good point i think there's would they have gone rear-engined uh you know mid-engine sooner don't know um would have been fascinating to fascinating to see how that would have would have worked out but you could also make the argument of what if Lancia had had more money and Ascari hadn't been killed in sports car crash I think the D50 was in some ways a more innovative interesting design than the W196 but if you've got two of a little bit like the McLaren in 1988 if you've got the two best drivers in the world in your team and you do a good reliable job with it you're halfway there already and the one guy that was on their level Ascari yeah was killed early on in the season they you know, Eugenio Castellotti, who did a great job to put it on pole at Spa, but he was never going to beat Moss and Fangio over, the, over a run of, you know, a whole Grand Prix distance, really. Let's move on to the top two cars on Kev's list. And just while we're at it, uh, Matt Q, don't don't commission me for extra stuff. I am, I am flat out as Grand Prix editor uh, with no racing happening at the moment. Um, at number two, it is the W125 from 1937, wins that year's uh, European Championship. Uh, and then number one is last year's Formula One Mercedes, the W11 uh, winning both titles, Lewis Hamilton takes his seventh, his sixth with Mercedes and the Constructors' title as well. Why have you got them that way round, Kev? Well, it was quite a, a big decision because the W125 is a car that's fascinated me since I was a kid. I had a I had a, a supercharged video, which is, I think, based on an old Horizon documentary in the mid-1980s, I think it was. And I watched, and it was Grand Prix car 1924 to 1939, and I watched it repeatedly. And the W125 just completely caught my imagination. Um, 
you know, Rudolf Ullenhauty, we should have mentioned already, really, the sort of master master Mercedes designer, looked at what was wrong with the W25, sorted out the suspension and the chassis, crammed in a 5.6-litre supercharged straight 8 engine, which produced 640-odd brake horsepower, which is power levels you, we wouldn't see again in single-seater Grand Prix racing until the 1980s. Uh, and yeah, it, it was the car to have. Auto Union, who'd been on top in 1936, were, were knocked off of its perch. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's a little bit of a dead end in that the you know the the formula, the 750 kilogram formula was was got rid of at the end of 1937. And as I said, the W154 was arguably a better car. But I just, how can you argue with 640 brake horsepower on 1930s tire size and technology? just it must have sounded amazing um yeah i would i would love to 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 see one of those driven in anger properly i think it would be a remarkable sight um so it was a strong contender um yeah big x factor i think it scores um but for me the w11 has x factor and all the other things so it's the culmination of all that success that we saw or that we've seen since 2014 um uh, but the two real killer things for me for it to put it on number one, one is the fact that they extended their advantage at the top of F1 uh, to a degree that you really don't normally see this far into a rule set. Um, you know, the start of the 2020, they're almost as far ahead of the game as, as teams from the early 90s, which is when there were some some pretty big gaps with things like the FW14B Williams. Uh, and I just think that's remarkable. And it was innovative. In a modern context, innovative. They did some clever stuff with the rear suspension. Uh, obviously, the the the, you know, the dual axis steering is the is the famous thing. But it was a it was a we've been stung by not being defeated, but by nearly being defeated in 2019. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at it, and they made it work, and it was phenomenal. And the second thing for me is, although I think the Italian Grand Prix pole position that Lewis Hamilton set 164.3 miles an hour record lap will probably stand for a few years. For me, it's the onboard of his lap at, at Spa. I just think that that's as, probably as close to perfection as I've seen a car-driver combination. Um, the, the the confidence he has at, at turning to the high and medium speed corners, and I compared it to the 2004 lap that Mark Schumacher did in the in the for that year's Ferrari which is another great F1 car and he that's impressive especially through the low speed because obviously they were lighter those cars but through the high speed stuff the precision of Hamilton and the confidence he's got in the car to do it is 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 something else um, but Alex you you what you are a rare person in that you've well obviously you're a unique person um but you're also one of the few people that's seen the W11 in the flesh um, because obviously most races were run behind closed doors. So what what have you made of it, Trackside? It looks to me just like an incredible piece of kit. Yeah, I, get, I mean, it comes back to what you're saying about the spa lap. If you watch that on board, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas as well, for, for his, uh, his, his uh, particularly in qualifying, I think if you look at the laps, they're just chucking it into corners. Like the wheel just goes completely around the steering wheel, that is, and it just nails it. It just does everything they ask for it. And time and time again, it was quite difficult last year in that, obviously, okay, I don't have anything to really compare it to apart from going track set up Formula E races, which is not comparable at all because the, the cars and technology are so much slower, so much different. Um, it's, it, you know, but, 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 do, but because I, because of COVID, I wasn't able to get as up close and personal with the, with the cars track side, had to sort of just basically try not to get in trouble with security while going to watch them at these various things so you, you I was quite far removed in terms of seeing it with my own eyes but what you could see at every time was that the drivers just got on the power that much earlier and they it, it just it was just 
it would turn in much nicer there was no they they you know they they it wasn't it wasn't flawless like there were times when they would go off the go off the go off the road or lock up and that's both Hamilton and Bottas but they would they would sort things out for when it mattered but it just seemed that little bit extra snappier it just had the just had more downforce I think it's worth making the point about this generation of cars which have been sort of slagged off for various reasons I mean the whole the sound of the turbo hybrid thing fortunately that complaint has has been drowned out now as well but um, I think these cars, you know, trackside in previous seasons, I've been very impressed with what the, the post-2016 cars have been able to do. Okay, so they're not impressive in the way that the pre-war Mercs are. That's a completely different thing. But they are in, they are just incredible. If you're used to seeing any other racing car, where they can where they break them, corner speed they can carry in, you know, they are the fastest racing cars in the world. And the, the W11 is the fastest car from the fastest season of the fastest category in motorsport. And probably will remain so for some time. You know, the F2004's lap records have, have, have largely been gone, largely been dealt with. The only thing that probably just kept the W11 back is the shortened season last year. I was sort of hoping that they keep the designation for 2021 because then it's absolutely nailed on number one, and it's it's in the argument about greatest Grand Prix cars. But I understand that Mercedes are going to going to make the 2021 car a W12 which probably means they've come up with something else clever and weird that nobody else knows about. So perhaps that'll be a, a future a future car to talk about. I spoke to Christian Horner the other day for a future Autosport magazine cover feature, and he called the W11 the best car that Mercedes has produced in the hybrid era. And I think that's absolutely right. But something that I always want to, I urge people to go back to and watch again is the, is the, the very end of the race at the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix at Imola, where... The safety car has been called out because, first of all, Max Verstappen, as his puncture, goes out and then George Russell crashes underneath it. But you get to see what what a different class the W11 was in in that run to the flag because Verstappen actually, he's so good that he, he interjects an element of doubt into how good Red Bull is. Like We, we, we know it's the second best car in Formula 1. Or, you know, if we look back at last season, second best car last season. But... Alex Albon again in that race was was nowhere really and Verstappen was hanging on to the two Mercedes cars in fact he's ahead of Valtteri Bottas because Bottas has run over that bit of Ferrari that suddenly went oh I'm at the front of a Formula One race this hasn't happened uh, before in 2020 so it was uh, it was refusing to let go um, and he's, he just kept he keeps it in it and it does you know you don't know is that because he's so good or is it because Red Bull's also good there's a there's little little bit of doubt in there but because he's out of the race and Bottas has come in and had that bit of Ferrari removed although you know the car would have been a little bit damaged still it's the two drivers the two Mercedes cars at the front of the race and they just clear off when the safety car comes in they are they are gone and there's a great battle going on behind okay yeah so Ricardo's in third place is on used tyres but there's other drivers coming through but they are in a different league they're absolutely gone so it's worth just just looking at that and thinking okay, that's how good the W11 was. No, I was just going to say one other thing. You make a good point about the Red Bull as well, which is, you know, some cars are quick, but they're they're difficult and you need to be a Max Verstappen to get the time out of it. But I, it doesn't look like the Mercedes is. It isn't a diva. It's not one of their earlier tricky cars. And I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of George Russell and I think he will probably get a Mercedes driver and will win races and probably world championships in the future. But the fact that he could jump in and do the job that he did... Uh, and just be immediately on the pace in his one-off drive. Uh, I think that's that that tells you something about the car as well. So yeah, a phenomenal piece of kit, and I think in years to come we will look back on it. And also it looks cooler in black. It was nice to have it change a change from the from the usual silver. So yeah, it ticks a lot of the boxes for me. Just just on the diva thing, and you know, yeah, this was a really a car that Mercedes didn't exactly need to get on top of throughout the season. 
a lot of that was to do with the fact that the 2019 tyres were carried over into 2020. It didn't have to do all that learning again, which you could argue is a slight black mark against it in a way if you see what i mean like there was no it didn't have to do that that extra work that the other cars might have done if i don't if that's what makes sense i'm not necessarily criticizing the car it's just you know it, it was there was something that was made easier for it by having that situation but then it was for everyone else as well wasn't it and they still managed to so it was, a, it was another level of something else that they didn't have they couldn't get an advantage out of it either and yet they extended their their margin from 0.1 percent or whatever it was to about 0.6 percent which in I mean, it sounds ridiculously small, but in F1 terms, that's an enormous jump, really, ahead over one season. I just wanted to pose a question to you two about whether W11 was perhaps a better race car than some of its predecessors. And I mean that with what the drivers were able to do when they weren't leading, essentially, when they were, you know, if you saw what George Russell did in, in Bahrain, what, what Hamilton, although that was an astonishing drive, uh, whether whether the car allowed him to make that progress in the Turkish Grand Prix, because it wasn't quite so much a knife-edge racer when it wasn't running in clean air. Is that is that a fair point to make from someone who was watching Formula One from afar last season? I'd say it's very difficult to make that case uh, comprehensively for a few reasons. One, if you look at the Italian Grand Prix, where Hamilton's leading from the front, utterly dominating, then the mistakes happen that he makes and the team makes, he ends up at the back. He comes through and he finishes just a few spots behind Valtteri Bottas. Bottas doesn't go anywhere. He makes a terrible start again and he just gets stuck in, in the traffic and he doesn't do anything. So it's a case of, is that Hamilton being brilliant? Or is that Bottas being terrible? Or is it the car and one of them's doing it as it should be and one of them isn't? Um, the, 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 the big case against that, I guess you could say, would be Abu Dhabi, where Verstappen is ahead of them in what we know to be a slower car and they can't make any progress. And it's all down to the fact that they, they messed up understanding the soft tyres in qualifying and that put them behind a track where you can't overtake. But then again, there's a track factor in there. Um, and with the Turkish Grand Prix, it's, it's really difficult because Mercedes have an off-key weekend. They don't nail the tyres at all in practice or in qualifying and had that been a wet race throughout as in steady rain the, the, the same conditions it was at the start he would never have won it it's again Hamilton's brilliance that comes through in the changing conditions so as a, I, I, I don't know if I've answered your question I'm the one that's supposed to ask them um, but yeah it's, it's a sort of I can see the point you're making I really can but I don't think there's enough evidence to support that if that makes sense I think also what you just said there Alex is you've, you're showing that it's difficult to identify sometimes where the Mercedes brilliant stops and the Hamilton brilliant starts and that's why they're so difficult to beat because they got everything covered you know Mercedes normally give Hamilton the fastest car on the grid and then on the odd occasion they don't he can still he, you know that that's why they pay in the big bucks he can still pull something out of the bag you know the 2018 Italian Grand Prix should have been a Ferrari race and he single-handedly did them over but well I suppose you could argue that Vettel did himself over with his with his bad position on the first lap but yeah I think that's uh it's a good point you it's very difficult to separate uh separate those two things out well throwing the question back to Matt Q for the final bit of this uh top 10 bit of the podcast uh do you agree with what with the order Kev has at one and two yeah yeah I, I do I have to say sort of uh I know it's easy to to put on rose-tinted spectacles. I think, Kev, if I might uh, sound patronising for a moment as as your junior, I mean that in a in a ranking rather than just on age. But yeah, I think I think it's done well to sort of pick WO7 and avoid your tendency towards historic cars. Um, and I think it's sort of it's backed up on all fronts, isn't it? You can't hold stats against. Okay, so the the W um, W125 only competed. I think was it twelve races in total, twelve championship races, and and, and one half of them. But 
even if you extrapolate that over a bigger season, all the stats back up the W11's favour. Um, but I do look forward to Kev having to rewrite this list in possibly one season, two seasons, three seasons time, because uh, I, know, I know it's sort of the subject of the mag cover feature, but you know what can derail Mercedes? And, and with another major regulation change on the horizon, there's, there's no reason to suspect the 2022 car can, can feature in this list and, and so on and so forth. Although for what it's worth, as we sort of said back last summer when we were doing the, uh, the, the greatest you know f1 cars ever as part of our celebrations of the as autosport turning 70 w11 could go on and be be known as the best grand prix car of all time it, it is in that conversation it is, it is a candidate for that so the point kevin made earlier is mercedes are doing themselves a, a disservice aren't they if they went to b spec then yeah it, it can it can sort of rank along the 70 uh, low to 72 which we have as our greatest formula one car that was in and around for and competitive for five seasons so yeah they need to i know it's i know it's much easier sort of naming and sequence but they need to sort of buck the trend do what williams are doing next season with a b spec and and then and then bring it in and mclaren I, 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 and red bull they're 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 calling they're using the b designation yeah, it's um. Maybe it's maybe it makes our debate easier and uh, means that Mercedes is just uh, the top Mercedes instead of the top Grand Prix car ever. Uh, but I think whatever happens, we'll consider it. We'll look back as it at it as a high watermark for for these cars because of that ridiculous one hundred yeah one hundred and sixty four mile an hour lap at Monza and yeah and and actually some of the average speeds at some of the other circuits. I couldn't believe the the average speed at Mugello how high that was. Like the, the cars are they are unbelievable at the moment and. Um, uh, yeah, every now and again the, the rules have to peg them back, and I think they're right to peg them back. But we can kind of enjoy the cars that came, the best of the cars, just before things get pegged back, which is why everyone loves the 2004 Ferrari, and I think people love the W11 Merc. I was lucky enough, and I do, I do appreciate that. I was very, very lucky in this to have seen both of those cars driving on on the, the day at the, the Tuscan Grand Prix with uh, Mick Schumacher doing the demo of the F2004. I went and stood on the roof and just spent about 20 minutes just watching one of my favourite, probably my favourite Grand Prix car of all time, <laughs> lapping an amazing track in the heat. You're in Italy. Then there's a motor race later on that was absolutely mad. Um, but yeah, it was just perks of the job. A good a good day, a good day at the office, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, actually, the you know people will lament about the V8s passing um, with the turbo hybrid, but I don't think that V8 sounded all that brilliant, to be honest. They were you know two point four liter V8s, uh, yeah, rev restricted and stuff. But if you go back a bit further to the to the V10 era, which that car is from, that's something. A twenty twenty thousand RPM V10 is that that is you know f- fair play. <laughs> Well, guys, I think we should discuss one very specific line in this week's magazine in detail, and that's uh, Derek Warwick's Electric Protégés, which is a picture sidebar heading that forms a part of a feature written by Matt that looks ahead to the new Formula E season. Uh, in the 2021 Formula E season, and frankly, I refuse to call it the 2020-2021 season that Formula E always designates it as. Because it isn't. I find it more egregious the tendency to give everything a th- season. It's a it's the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh yeah, we season. Ignore that. that that means nothing. Who who is working that out in their heads? I team bosses move away from that, please. And it's the same with uh, I know we we do it at Autosport because you know it, it's slightly easier in terms of saving words and various things to call it FE. But if you are Formula E yourself, you should never refer to it as FE because nobody outside 
you know, the, the limited audience that it has, and, and motorsport has, I mean, knows what FE means. So anyway, diff, diff, very specific things were going on about. Matt, you must love this, as, as you said earlier, loving uh, pedantry. And yeah, of course. So yeah, no no races from 2020 taking part uh, in the uh, in the 2021 Formula E season. That was going to be the case even before the latest COVID disruption. But as part of that campaign, there'll be seven British drivers, all of whom are linked further by our Young Driver Award. Uh, Jaguar driver Sam Bird, Neo 333 pair Oliver Turvey and Tom Blomqvist, uh, Mahindra Racing Geo, Alexander Sims and Alex Lim with their great names. Nissan Edam's driver Oliver Rowland and BMW Andretti rookie Jake Dennis were all finalists for the Aston Martin Autosport Young Driver of the Year Award, formerly sponsored, of course, by McLaren, during their early single-seater careers. And Turvey, Sims, Rowland and Dennis won the award outright. Uh, so, Matt, can you tell us about this feature, please? And also how it came to be in the magazine. Was it was it not the case that you had pages to fill and uh, called for a certain former Autosport Formula E correspondent to help with the hook? No, I, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Although uh, I'd like to, I'd like to take a moment. phone call I got. I'd like to take a moment to to consider the point you made earlier, which is one of the five. I think you called it the greatest line in the magazine. I can't remember what you said, but Derek Warwick's electric proteges. I'm one I'm, specific line. <laughs> I'm particularly proud of the headline, uh, which is keeping the British end up. Which I have to admit, I stole a bit from. Uh, I think it was Evo magazine ran it a couple of years ago when a selection of Jaguars. But as a James Bond fan, I thought I couldn't I couldn't resist the temptation. But yeah, like like you say, Alex, um, what gave me the idea? I, well, first and foremost, I didn't want it to become sort of. Um, too much of an article about flying the flag yes they happen to be british uh that that is one angle but one i've geared it more about them all having come through the award we've got a nice sign off from head judge Derek Warwick, and two that they're all in strangely a similar position they're all in they're all driving for teams that need to really recover from a pretty rubbish either entire of last season or particularly the six races in berlin so i thought that was a more a more interesting thread and that's that's what i get get it around because yes it is a nice coincidence seven brits which is the most in any point in formerly despite all the mad chopping and changings over the year and yes it's nice they've all won the award and that shows how how good the award is how good it is as selecting talent and, and developing those careers but they're they're incidental aren't they they're they're just they're something they all share in common um but I thought their more interesting narrative was was the path that each each team is on, and you know, for someone like uh, Jake Dennis as well, and um, and Alex Lynn in part, and also Tom Blomqvist, who again stretching, he's an Anglo Swede, but they've also got a similar narrative, and they're fighting for their Formula E careers. Je- you know, we know BMW is leaving. Jake Dennis has one season to come in alongside uh, Maximilian Gunther, who on his day is fantastic. He's got to you know put himself in a shop window, and and Blomqvist and Lynn, they've been in in and out Formula E, in and out Formula E, and now they've really. You know, you ask both of them and say, right, this is it. I'm here to stay. And so we've got to see that from them. So they're, they're interesting narratives in of itself. Let's head back to Formula E. Um, Matt, I'm particularly interested in what you write about Oliver Rowland and Nissan Edams because that's a team that is so integral to the story of Formula E so far. When it was Renault at the start after the first year as a spec car, it is, it's effectively... To, for, to make a lazy comparison, it's the Mercedes of Formula E. It's the super team. It wins by a mile, wins loads of races, but Wemi should have more titles than he does. Um, but there, you know, then then they had the, the very innovative twin motor powertrain that was banned on cost grounds. All sorts of rumours as to other objections on that on that powertrain uh, at the time when I was covering the championship. And now you say they're going to really benefit from uh, the different you know the different ways teams were allowed to introduce new powertrains. So. Obviously, Roland gets that win in Berlin. I think it's the penultimate race of the season. But with everything that's happened for the head of the new season, how strong are his chances? 
in isolation, sort of very, but every time you consider Roland's title chances, you've got to you've got to look at his teammate Sebastian Buemi, who is probably a more complete Formula E driver. So, so Kev won't like that. Hates no, him. I think at this point you'd have to you'd have to agree with that. Yeah, so, but I think to to the point the point you're you're sort of alluding to, Alex, is yet because of the pandemic, the FIA introduced three times that new Formula E teams could introduce their new car because whatever they do, a new car or a car now has to last two seasons to sort of save save on the pennies. Well, the forty million dollars. Uh, but uh, so so you know most teams have gone to start the new season with with their new car they've they've thought you know we've got the delays in production from the pandemic but we still think we can homologate it in time nissan and diesta cheetah um and also dragon penske autosport but let's focus on nissan and diesta cheetah because they all actually fo- uh, sort of feature in the uh, title race they decided to go for a second window which meant delaying their first car for what was originally the first half of the season so you know yes all the guys bringing a new power training from the off they might have some unreliability unre- which is you know fairly unlikely given Formula E but you know DS to Cheetah Nissan they could upgrade their car with software but essentially they're running an old package for the first five races so I spoke to loads of team bosses and they were and even the champion Antonio Felix da Costa and they all conceded that if we're going to challenge them we need to do the heavy lifting in these early five races because we know DS to Cheetah's new car will be better and they're promising some exciting technology which we'll never find out about so they're going to stay, take a, a step on even further so it was those first five races but now because the pandemic has sort of come back with a vengeance we're in in lockdown 3.0 we've we've lost three of those five races so now if and and the homologation slots haven't haven't moved it's causing some consternation well quite a lot of consternation with with teams and drivers except for incidentally the nissan and dsg drivers but the fia have said we're not we're not going to change it. it you know this has happened just just deal with it in effect so now if if DS to Cheetah and Nissan can get through those first two races and keep it respectable. And by that, I I think for a caliber of those teams, you're talking a top five result. If if they're 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 just bringing their new cars forward and to sort of labour the point a little bit, those four races we've lost from the start of the season will be reintroduced at the back end of the season where, you know, uh, Alberto Longo, Longo, their chief championship officer, I spoke to him and he said, we're targeting 15 races this season, which sounds ambitious, but even if it's more than 11 of last season, more than 13, which is the highest number, those four races or three races have been cancelled. They still exist and will exist at the back end of the season. So that's three more races that... DS to Cheetah and Nissan will have for the better car. So it's it's almost like a six-way race string. They've they've lost three races with the old car and gained three races with the new better car. So I think that'll be that'll be sort of an exciting title fight. And and within that, uh, to go right back to what you said earlier, Roland, Roland, you know, was strong strong last season. He had a he had a really sizable uh, qualifying shunt in Santiago. Um, which is sort of in keeping with his one lap do or die pace, but I think that knocks his confidence. He said, you know, that wasn't a sustainable attitude. So he took he took a step back from that, but that step back lost him three or four tenths, and and it took him a while to refine that. So I think, yeah, Nissan better car coming sooner. Roland on with confidence, race wins definitely should come. In fact, it'll, it'll be a disappointment for the team if there aren't any. And Kev, obviously, the, as I said, the hook of this uh, hook of this feature, once Matt had uh, given me a phone call, uh, was the the fact that all these drivers uh, were in the award final. What did what you know? You were you there for all of them going back uh, right the way to to Turvey and Sims, or or, or, or I, not? I was so I was a, I was a judge. I've been a judge since two thousand and eight, so that was when uh, Alexander Sims won the award. That's my first year as a judge, but I was there 
as the sort of um, reporting journo for the two years prior to that. So I was the, the, also there when Oliver Turvey won and Sam Bird was having his second attempt. So yeah, I was there for I was there for for all of this. I was just just looking about it and, and thinking about. It. And actually, the 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 best year or the hardest year to judge since I've been doing it was two thousand and eleven when Tom Blonkvist, Oliver Rowland and Alex Lynn were all in it. And they were they were the three pace setters. And uh, uh, I think I don't think I'm giving anything away now really to say that, you know, Alex sadly dropped it at Cops and, and stuck one of the F two cars in the in the barrier. And ironically, given what he went on to do uh, in his career, Tom Blonkfish struggled with the DTM car. Um and and, and Ollie Rowland uh, I don't like using the phrase natural ability because I think it's a nonsense and doesn't really mean anything. But in terms of just jumping in and being able to produce a lap time, Roland's one of the one of the best young drivers um, I've seen. Um, so I was a bit surprised actually when he went to Formula E because I didn't think that would necessarily immediately fit his skill set. But I think it just shows what Derek Warwick says at the end of the piece, which is you know these guys are of a level that you can put them in anything and they'll be they'll be competitive. I do have a slightly amusing aside that I want to ask Matt, which is, can I blame Matt for the Alan Partridge reference in the picture caption on, yeah, on, on in the magazine? Of course, of course you can, surely. He's, he, it's his whole thing, it's his whole personality. Did you not see the egregious Alan Partridge reference I made in, oh no, you're on holiday in, uh, in last week's listings article. I dedicated an entire paragraph to uh, quoting a scene, but no, I, I haven't, shoehorned it in necessarily but the very first question i asked alex lynn when when he had had chance to settle in with uh alexander sims at mahindra was have you have you learned any alan partridge quotes from your teammate and uh and mr lynn bloody hell they're both called alex he he just said i was a super fan already and i thought it was nice to i'd maxed out i had taken on a ridiculous task of trying to cover seven drivers in 1500 words so I use the captions as a way of adding extra info, and I just thought readers might like to get closer to their heroes and learn that they both they both like Partridge. No, oh. I agree with that. I just wanted to um, just wanted to clarify and make sure, so in case anyone was looking at it, thinking that's a bit random. But yeah, that that is true. Actually, Alexander Sims is one of the most quietly funny racing drivers Completely. I've ever come across. He's very deadpan, but he's very very. He's now a judge on the award, of course. Um, yeah, with me and, and, and Derek and uh, a few other a few other luminaries of uh, greater repute than me, but um, yeah, he's a, he is a surprisingly funny individual. If you have the pleasure to spend some time with him, yeah, Simsy and I both went to the same school, so I wonder if we both learnt it there. But um, they certainly don't celebrate my achievements quite as much as they do Alexander Simsy's, which I think on balance is possibly fair. Well, not not yet. You still got time to to do something with your life. Brutal. I also realised I completely avoided one of your questions earlier about sort of Nissan Bings in some ways the the bedrock of formulary. But you know, it's a championship that's going through a lot of change. Sadly Jean Paul Drio, you know, passed away um last year and, and now the team has been taken over by his uh, two sons. Um and I think while Nissan is very keen to to remain in formulary and will and will sort of sign up to the Gen three rules imminently, um I think Certainly, the race team, the EDAM side of it is going, or the DAM side of it is going through a period of, of significant change. It'll be interesting to see whether that, that coalesces or whether it sort of reveals itself in some operational areas on the track. But aside from aside from the change of, of, of manager, I suppose you've still got all the crack engineer, crack team of engineers in place. Uh, but it's not just the seven drivers, Matt, that have links to the award. What what other Formula E uh, personalities, uh, important? you know, important people, one of the runs of one of the teams. Uh, what are the other links to the award that's in Formulary? 
Well, as I quipped in the opening line of the piece, the chances are sort of even with social distancing measures, you're always going to be within or uh, approximately two metres away from a award finalist because you've got Dario Franchitti in the comms box. Um, Gary Puffett is still very much a part of the Mercedes team, sort of feeding back to the drivers. Um, and he's also on standby as a reserve driver, which uh, is another issue in Formula E. You know, there's a pandemic going on and lots of teams haven't got a reserve driver, which seems a bit silly, but there you go. James Rossiter is uh, is DS to Cheetah's development driver. And I, I feel he has my sympathies uh, because... Uh, Last season, he was slated to do the Marrakesh rookie test, but then Jean-Eric Verne in Marrakesh came down with a, a virus that wasn't COVID. So he did 20 minutes of free practice and then, and then had to sit out the, uh, sit out the te- uh, test while they flew in Nicholas Lapierre overnight. Anyway, uh, Venturi Racing's team principal, Susie Wolfe, who's an award finalist in, uh, in 2003, although Susie Stoddard back then. And then uh, just before this issue went to press and we, we finalised the table, Jordan King, the uh, the ex Indy car driver, twenty twelve award finalist uh, Mahindra, now have him on the books as a simulation driver. So I thought, but if if you ex- expand it beyond there, every every person who's ever worked in Formula E has has some link to the award. The 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 sort of roll call is phenomenal. It certainly is. It certainly is, and we look forward to seeing where all our award finalists in in recent years and in future years uh, get on in motorsport. Uh, but elsewhere in the magazine, deputy editor and Matt's successor as British touring car correspondent Marcus Simmons has written a feature celebrating the ten year anniversary of the BTCC's next generation touring car formula. Indeed, as Marcus points out, the word "next" has long become inaccurate, and the rules will be around until at least twenty twenty six. So, Kev, I think at this point, just in case any podcast listeners aren't aware, uh, it's worth explaining just exactly what the NGTC rules are and why they've been around for so long. Yeah, so I suppose very basically there there are lots of spec parts um, that initially you could buy from GPRM and now you can get them from RML. So it's a subframe that bolts onto the the front and back of the car. You can also get um, effectively the championship engine, if you like, which is a Swindon engine, or you can develop one from from the manufacturer um, uh, as well. And it was just a way of providing uh, sort of a, a cost-effective way of going British tour and car racing. And it's been incredibly successful. You know, there were a few teething problems early on with boost levels. I covered the championship <laughs> during the time when the boost levels were not correct. I think I've, I've probably said that enough times in print that Alan Gale's got over it by now. But they weren't right. Uh, but they, they worked on it and it, it, it was, you know, it's got better and better and closer and closer. And you've seen... Yeah, lots of you know teams um, and drivers being able to compete for wins, which you know it's an entertainment category. Let's be honest, um, and it's it gives good good entertainment. Um, but I think you know one of the people that Marcus speaks to in the piece is Christian Dick at Speedworks, and the NGTC regulations have allowed him to go from wanting one running one car with a you know sort of rich amateur driver all the way through to becoming a factory backed, and this year will be two car operation fighting for the championship. Um, you know the NGTC rules have allowed him to do that it's allowed the championship to prosper without big manufacturer support which is always a challenge because as we know they pull they go in and out of of categories especially at this volatile time so um, yeah I think I think it's it's pretty impressive and of course Super Touring which is the previous uh, kind of the great British Touring Car era if you like which spread around the world that that's held up as the benchmark and, and it lasted a decade so it seemed a good time to you know to celebrate NGTC really. Well, Matt, I gave you a bit of uh, homework to do before coming on the podcast today. Um, a little test for you. Who are the three most successful drivers of the NGTC era? And what can you tell me about them, please? Well, 
unfortunately, I didn't have to do too much homework because uh, Marcus Simmons, uh, yeah, our deputy editor who, who wrote this piece, has compiled the stats nicely, and then they've uh, our crack art team have sort of uh, put them in the in the shape of a grid. So, um, so for the sake of brevity, we'll stick it to the uh, we'll keep it to the drivers who are the most successful of an average. So. Um, so average points per 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 race. So we've got Gordon Shedden on pole, the, the three-time touring car champion, uh, and then Turkington second with an average of eleven point four points per race, which is uh, what just zero point three behind behind Shedden. And, and Turkington, obviously four-time title winner. Three of those came in the NGTC era, and then Dan Camish, who's averaged ten points in uh, uh, in his eighty-seven races which you know is a good at least 100 behind sort of his uh his rivals on that list so it's you've sort of got Shedden who I still I still feel like we've been denied certainly over the last two years you know Shedden in in the championship Turkington who's comparative an old guard and, and then Dan Camish who's come in for sort of and essentially Dan Camish's job over the, his three years in the touring car championship has been to drive his car in reverse he's used to or his success came in rear engine rear wheel drive Porsches and now he's in a front wheel drive front engined Honda and sort of the way he's acclimatized has been has been uh, has been great to watch and he obviously came very close to the championship in uh, 2019 before his dramatic failure but yeah th- those are the guys who are sort of the most successful and then as as you'd expect you know Plato despite sitting out last season he's he's not far away I think he's he's second behind Turkington on the all-time winners list so Turkington's got 37 wins in NGTC Plato Plato 29 so so they're the guys that are really the 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 leading lights and um PTC has a good habit of sort of keeping hold of its its star drivers so Shedden expected it's quite cool that those shining stars of the NGTC you know you can go and watch them this season as well do battle and and make those stats sort of out of date before long what I like about this as well is that although as I said um slightly for you know tongue-in-cheek that it you know it's an entertainment and they want lots of winners so I think that is true but the people that win the championships and win the most races are still the quality teams and drivers so yeah looking at that wins list taking to plato shed and jordan matt neil ash sutton tom ingram at the top they they are the they are the best drivers i think of that era so it's 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 right that they're 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 in those places um so yeah i think i I wrote funnily enough in 2013 i think it was i wrote a piece comparing super touring with ngtc I tried to encourage Marcus to do the same this time. Not sure he's he's, he's bitten, uh, and of course he actually did cover Super Touring as well. So in a way, even better place to do the comparison. Um, I, I personally would still have Super Touring ahead because if you're doing the criteria of quality of car, quality of driver, closeness of racing, NGTC is ahead on closeness of racing. But the the car driver level in Super Touring, I think, would would, would edge it ahead. Uh, you know, those cars were phenomenal, but that's not to that's not to criticise NGTC. I think it has been a very successful formula. It's kind of, in a way, it's a shame that it hasn't spread around the world a bit more uh, like Super Touring did, uh, which did become an international category for a while. But perhaps that speaks of its its sort of why it's been able to continue so long because you know Super Touring Super Touring uh, went abroad. It didn't it didn't help the the monetary problems it already had in terms of how it how expensive it was. And um, I think it's nice sort of that the British Touring Car Championship exists in its own way and hasn't been picked up. I remember being sat sort of with uh, Mr. Gow when. Um, 
TCR UK was first announced and, T, you know, he didn't bat an eyelid. And, and while that championship has worked elsewhere, I think NGGC, it, it brings a lot more in many ways, not least of which is that you can have, you know, front wheel drive and rear wheel drive, which causes its own problems of parity. But, you know, one of the great things that I like about tintop racing is, is generally the diversity that, you know, silhouettes look different. You know, and certain cars favour or certain tracks favour certain cars, and having a different different sort of drivetrain as well, I think, adds to it as well. But without the sort of the complexity of that weird overlap you had with Super Two Thousand, where some were naturally aspirated, some weren't. I think I think it's pretty pretty on the money. Yeah, I covered two thousand eleven, which was the overlap year, which was yeah, not uh, not a pleasant year in the paddock on on some occasions. The the thing I would add about British touring cars at the minute though is it'd be great to welcome some international drivers back, even towards the sort of tail end of the BTC era, which I've I've defended before and will c- go on to and continue to do so. Even then, you had sort of Giovinardi, and I think although it is a British tour car, touring car championship, it would be great to sort of bring back that element of you know some some uh, European heads. Well, in, in support of your point, actually, Matt, uh, Matt Neal did say to Marcus with a piece that he thought those BTC T regulations were, were the best in terms of uh, you know, cost effectiveness. You know, they were even cheaper than the NGTC cars. Uh, my argument would be that I think the NGTCs are a good mix of the cars being kind of spectacular and fast enough with not being too expensive. Um, but yeah, he did. He did praise those those regulations as well. And of course, Matt Neal has seen many, many different touring car regulations over the years. Maybe, maybe that's why uh, NGTC hasn't gone over. As uh, the British touring cars are still peeved at the way the FIA left them on their on their backside by in, um, sort of uh, introducing Super Two Thousand, which was more expensive, but essentially exactly the same rules package. So maybe that conversation has gone on. Although I know Alan Gow serves on the FIA touring car board, so so maybe he hasn't held them sort of at point blank and said, "No, you can't have our rules that have been so successful." Once again, I use the the catchphrase apparently I say, Matt, which is that's uh, another a whole another podcast in itself. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, the two of you. It's a thoroughly enjoyable way to spend uh, nearly an hour and a half of lockdown. It was really good. Enjoyed that. Uh, and of course, thanks to everybody listening along. Uh, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network.